Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. This podcast is powered by Christianity Today. What's up, JR? Hey, Doug. Good to see you. Happy Lent. I don't know. Happy Lent? I don't know if that's what we're supposed to say. Uh, greetings to you in this season of Lent, maybe. Is that, <laughs> is that better? I think I like that. Yeah. I, yeah. Definitely not Happy Lent. Maybe like Gesundheit Lent or so. I don't know. It's, it is, it's a hard one. I think greetings to you in this season of Lent. I like that. Yeah. That works. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really interesting to be in a pandemic and in Lent. Yes. You know, it's yes. just, I mean, it's last year, you know, we were sort of doing that, but yeah, it's just a, who would have thought two Lents in a pandemic, you know? Yeah. And it, I mean, even just as I've been preparing for teachings during this season, just really to, to weigh that in and to say, yeah, we're, we're, we're entering the season of Lent, you know, we're in the season of Lent. And yet we've been in a Lenten season. Yeah, for that's a, long a great point. <laughs> Lent, Lent didn't stop. Yes, <laughs> Lent kind of <laughs> hung on for a little bit longer than normal. Yeah, I saw someone on Facebook today. They said, Lent? We've been in Lent since March 2020. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so even though we're, we're laughing about it, we know it is a very yes. important season. And uh, the idea that it's, you know, the idea of an empty tomb and the idea of a resurrected Christ is so big. You can't just wake up on Sunday morning, on Easter morning, and just go, sweet, let's celebrate. Like, yeah. It's so big. We've got to back up and, and celebrate that over a longer period of time. Remember those little like Hot Wheel cars like growing up where you feel like pulled them back. They kind of had mm. enough torque and then you like let it go. Yeah. In some ways, Lent is kind of like that pullback of the car for 40 days yeah. to let go to, to crash through this beautiful wall of uh, resurrection and, and freedom that, mm. that's happened. So anyway, yeah, it's just the, the pulling back on the torque a little yeah. bit in our lives. That's a powerful uh, image. I really appreciate that, Jared. That I think, yeah. I, it just I, popped in my head. So like if it's it. radical, uh, <laughs> I, I just thought of it. It's like, who was the last author you're reading? They're the heretic, not you. <laughs> so even though it is Lent, uh, we were talking before we recorded, press record, uh, baseball it's uh, season is coming. Uh, so as you know, I'm a big baseball fan. Spring training uh, is, you know, where everybody assumes uh, hope because their team is going to win it all because right. no team has lost a game yet. So yes. It's just hope springs eternal for, for, for spring training. So yeah, baseball, uh, at least there's some good news coming. So yeah. 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 And for you, it's baseball. For me, it's like the, uh, with hopefully the winter will begin to thaw and especially in Pennsylvania, we've had so much snow. Yeah. I'm excited for a good season of fly fishing coming up. I mean, I fly fish all year round, but with all this snow, I think we're going to be in for just a great season. A lot of rich nutrients going back into our water. There you great. go. There you Looking go, man. Great. That's awesome. Well, we're really looking forward to this episode that we have. This is one that Doug wasn't with me on. I did it um, just uh, me and our guest. Um, but we want to apologize for the sound. Uh, there was a, you're you're, you're going to be able to hear the interview just fine, but um, the quality of the sound isn't what it needs to be uh, normally. What we have, but nonetheless, it's not distracting, and I, I think you're going to really enjoy this interview. So enjoy this this interview on the Monday Morning Pastor podcast with Scott McMahon. Dr. Scott McKnight is an author, New Testament scholar, ordained Anglican priest, and professor at Northern Seminary in the Chicago area. 
He has written 50 books. That's right, five zero books. But he is most known for his book, The Jesus Creed. He's also the host of a wonderful podcast called Kingdom Roots, which I listen to regularly and benefit from greatly. Now, many of our listeners may know Scott McKnight, or you've read some of his books, but here are three things you may not know about him. Number one, he was elected into the Hall of Honor at his alma mater, Cornerstone University, for his stellar basketball accomplishments during his college career. The man could ball. Number two, he's an avid birder. He loves bird watching. In fact, I've been with him when he listens for and points out birds I didn't even know existed. And three, he's an avid baseball fan. The Chicago Cubs, to be exact. In fact, his son, Lucas, is a scout for the Cubs organization. And Scott attended the World Series the year the Cubs won it all. Scott proudly shows off the picture of him wearing the World Series ring, which his son received on that winning team. And he has every right to show off that ring. I probably would too. Now you can read more from McKnight at his blog, Jesus Creed, found on the Christianity Today website. Now that's his formal introduction, but I'm grateful to have known Scott for the past several years. In fact, years ago when I was in seminary, Scott came to Biblical Seminary on the north side of Philadelphia, now called Missio Seminary. He came as an instructing, a visiting instructor to teach an elective course on Galatians. It was the second best course I've ever taken in my life. Not only did I learn a great deal academically, but more importantly, I was in a season of great grief and intense pain, and his course on the book of Galatians, which of course is Paul's book about freedom and grace found in the gospel, unleashed something in me personally that I needed in that season of life. I was also honored that he was kind enough to offer an invitation to me to serve on his team of readers with two of his book projects, providing feedback to early editions of manuscripts. Scott is a great thinker. He's one who loves Jesus, and he helps others do the same. This conversation centers on his most recent book, A, Call, a Church Called Cove, Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. And he wrote the book with his daughter, Laura Beringer. I've read the book, and it's fantastic and much needed in our day and age. Enjoy this conversation with my friend, Scott McKnight. Well, Scott, it's good to see you again, and it's good to have you on the podcast here today. Good to see you. Yeah. Always always great to connect with you. And we were talking before uh, before we pressed record about being elected into the Hall of Honor at your alma mater for your accomplishments on the court. When was the last time you were in the driveway shooting hoops? Oh, well, we replaced our driveway basketball hoop, but I played in the fall with my grandson in my son's driveway. That's great. That's great. How is the shot today? We you don't we know you're not being arrogant, but how's how's the shot? Is it still there? I can, I can still shoot, but it takes me a shot or two to figure out the distance to the basket, but uh yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. <laughs> well, most most people know you by your writing and I think you're up to 50 books or more now. If I were to ask you to name, I'm not going to, but if I were to ask you to list the names of all the books in order, could you do it? No, no. <laughs> I could get a lot of them. I could get a lot of them, but no, I couldn't do that. Well, you're certainly most known for Jesus Creed. And I know that you're not really supposed to say this because all of your kids are your favorite, but do you have a favorite book personally that you just enjoyed the most? Uh, in the writing process? You know, I often tell people that my favorite book is the last one I wrote. 
Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, Jesus Creek was a lot of fun to write. Uh, that was a lot of work because that, that was a level of writing I'd never done. King Jesus Gospel was a lot. I loved mm. writing the commentary on Philemon. Uh. And I remember when I sent it to Joel Green, who's the editor, um, I was really kind of sad that I had to send it in. I, mm. I mean, I suppose there was more I could have worked on, but the, I'd already exhausted the word limit. And uh, I thought I'd worked the things out that I thought I needed to work out. Commentary on Philemon. Yeah. That's a great answer. Well, let's talk about your newest book, which is your favorite because it's the most recent that's come out, from what I understand, uh, that you wrote with your daughter, Laura. So uh, for those of us who may not be familiar with it, so a church called Tove, uh, what does Tove mean? Why is Tove important for us to grasp, uh, especially in this day and age? Tove is the Hebrew word for good. And it is a master moral category of the Old Testament. So when God creates, he creates things good. And he, the word is tov. And when he's all done with, every, every day is tov, 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 tov. And when it's all done, it's tov ma'od. Very good. Perfectly good. Over and over in the Old Testament, tov is both a characteristic and attribute of God. God is tov. And God does what is tov. And everything God designs is tov, and the design for humans is to be tov. So tov is a, a good moral category. It's a nice, catchy word. You know, my publisher wasn't too big on using the Hebrew word. I said, you just watch. And everybody who talks about the book calls it tov. Out of church called tov, just tov. So it's a catchy word, but it, it's a summary, and it's not... Um, it's not familiar, so therefore it's fresh. The other side of it is, um, in Protestant Christianity especially, I can't speak for Catholic Christianity that much, um, we're nervous about using the word good, about mm. being good. Uh, mm. We know uh, what Paul says in Romans 3.12, so he's quoting the Bible, Old Testament. There is none good, no, not one. And uh, we like to kind of stick there. But uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, praises the Romans for their goodness, and he tells uh, the Galatians that one of the fruits of the Spirit is goodness. Tov. So mm. we are called to be tov. It's a big, it's a big term, and it summarizes everything about how we should tov. Well, we were together uh, down in Florida at the Ecclesia National Gathering. You talked about tov. It was the first time I, you know, heard you talk about tov, and I remember sitting there thinking, "Yes, this is central to who." God's character is and what Paul calls us into. Jesus, of course, lived Tove. Why then is this something that we're not talking about a whole lot before your book? And maybe it's because we say stuck in, no, we're not good. But if it's so central, I think that's always what struck me reading your book, hearing you teach on it. Man, this is right in front of our face, and yet we just don't acknowledge it. Yeah. You know, uh, I tell people, Open up their uh, concordance, if they know how to use a concordance, and look up the word good in the Old Testament. Not mm. like 200 times. I mean, it's, a, it's there a lot. And it's mm. in summary statements. You know, when Solomon prays for Israel, he prays, <clears throat> he prays that they'll be told. And the prophets say, pursue our wisdom literature. Pursue told and avoid wrath, the, the evil. And uh, when I use this with Old Testament professors, you know, 
they go, oh yeah, this is a really important word. But it is, it, it's sort of sad, but uh, in, in the writing, I'll tell you why we latched onto this word, is when I first wrote about Willow Creek on my blog, I said, we need, what we need is churches to have leaders and a culture that is uh, marked by goodness. And it just sort of jumped off the page for me when I wrote it. And the number of people who wrote me, people who told me, that was an important word. I, I want to know more about goodness. So I just kind of stuck it in my back pocket and said, I'm going to use this when I get an opportunity. So mm. that's why. But it is, JR, you're totally right. People are afraid to use it. It's almost like an arrogant claim. Mm. Claim that you're good. And um, it's wrong not to claim you're good if the Holy Spirit is supposed to make us into. We, we always say we should be loving, and we should be saying we should be told. Good. Mm. It's fascinating how we're afraid to call ourselves good, and yet we, we, we don't do that as much as we should or need to. Yet, in a colloquial setting, in a cultural setting, we say it all the time. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm yeah. good. And yeah. so we sort of have lost the meaning of it culturally, but we haven't latched onto it theologically and sort of, yeah. there's this yeah. barren wasteland in the middle that I'm so glad that you've decided to occupy and communicate. And of course, you and your family attended Willow Creek for years. You've been public and quite vocal about the lack of toveness in both the founder and senior pastor, but also the culture there. Um, why was this something that you cared about so passionately? beyond Chicago? Why did the world need to yeah. know about Willow and Tove? Well, the world did know about Tove. I did mm -hmm. know about Willow, whether I talked about it or not. Um, it's because uh, we, we went there. My daughter and her husband met there. Um, her husband worked there. And I teach in Chicagoland, and I have defended Willow many times mm -hmm. to my colleagues like, the guy whose initials will only use David Fitch, <laughs> who's <laughs> always after mega churches. And um, uh, when this happened, people were asking me about it uh, all over the place because they knew I had gone there. What did I think? Did I ever see anything like this? You know? And so uh, I was talking about it, and students were asking about it, and it became a paradigm for. Seminary edu education to talk about this to say this is what was happening. This was not wise. Um, this was not checked. Uh, and I remember a student calling me and saying, "What can I do now so that I don't become like that in the future?" So um, actually, I wasn't going to write about it. My daughter and her husband pestered me in a sense, in a good way. They kept asking me because they were so involved with Willow people. Uh, and there was so much consternation and division over how to respond that they were asking me all the time. And I kept saying this and they'd find something else that was going being said. And they asked me about that. And I'd say that before long, I just sat down one day in an airport and wrote down uh, maybe a thousand words of things that I was. I just wanted to put some of my thoughts together the way I think, mm. you know, I write. And uh, before long, uh, I posted that on the blog, and the next thing I, I was officially a part of the conversation. Mm. Newspapers were calling me, and radios were calling me, and a publisher asked me to write a book about Willow. 
I said, no, I, they're not going to let me have access to the records, and I'm not a church historian. So uh, I, I feel like this is a story, but it's not just about Willow. There's Harvest, there's Sovereign Grace, there's the Roman Catholic Church, there's the Southern Baptist pastors who grace gospel ministry. Um, I, uh, I wanted to tell a little bit about that in order to uh, talk about what we can do to keep this from happening. That's, yeah. that, that's was my goal. So. Yeah. And just to be clear, I know you've, you've wrote, written about it. I've heard other interviews to say this is not a book about Willow, but it becomes the backdrop of which you need to talk about Tove because that's your yes. experience, right? So yeah. it's not a Willow expose book. If people no. say, I don't really care about Willow. I know they're important. Uh, um, you're basically using that story to launch into talking about Tove, if I'm understanding yeah. you right. I don't want to put oh, words yeah. in your mouth oh. here. Oh, that's exactly um, right. And and, and Jr. Here's the, here's the amazing thing, I I get a letter or Laura gets a letter almost every day from someone, some church, some church will say, we need this book. We're struggling with something. Someone will say, my pastor is so toxic. Our church is so toxic. Our elders need to talk about. It. It's just every day. Like I got I got a wonderful letter today from a pastor who's going to take his leaders to it, and this is what. Really, what we want is for this book to be purchased for leaders in churches in order to help work toward a Tove culture in churches. We need this. We need, you know what I got? I got an amazing letter today from a search committee. Tell us how to find a Tove pastor. We're sick of toxic pastors. Wow. Uh, of, course, wow. of course, I don't know what's going on in that church, but. No, do I have a list of those pastors? I, I have a short list, but they're mm. all doing very well. You know? mm. Sure. So, you know. Well, it, this I know theologically, or we talked about that at the top, like, you know, theologically, you know, there's not goodness in us, but the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. Why? why? It's not, I can't believe I'm asking this question, but why is it so hard to find Tove in cultures of local churches when the whole nature of the gospel is about Tove? Well, if I had an answer to that question, uh, the first thing I would say is um, none of us is totally Tove. Only God is totally Tove. So we're going to all have some elements of toxicity about us, and some of us have more toxicity than others. Um, and you put together a people, a group of people who uh, who none of whom are perfectly tove, uh, it probably is going to magnify the non-tove about them. Eventually, mm. it'll come out. So that's one thing. The other thing is um, we are far too often striving for the wrong thing in church. We are striving for success measured by butts in, butts in seats, bills in the plates, Baptism in, in the water and whatever. I've heard of four Bs, but that's three Bs. All right. We're striving for those things. And when you start doing that sort of thing, JR, you start focusing on the wrong measurement. And um, for instance, there's a recent story of Dave Ramsey's business. Very successful. But workers are saying what it's like to work in there. Right, if you measure everything by the bottom line, 
how much money comes in. Um, it's going to distort what you do. It's going to keep you from doing the right thing. So I think we need a complete revolution in both seminary education and church process that we are striving for Tove character and not for success in churches. Now, that doesn't mean we have to have terrible preachers, but we have turned Sundays into performance where the best preacher wins. Well, that's just a persona magnified on a platform rather than real character. Um, when I uh, am with my students for a week, when I when I, we take our students, say, to Turkey and Greece, or when we take our DMIN students to Israel, if you're with people for a week like that, two weeks, their character comes out, and there's people you go, that person's told. That, that's, that's the person. That's what we need. Uh, we can see this. We, you know, uh, I, we use one of the things my uh, people have said, who are you using as examples of Tove? And I said, nobody alive. They have to be dead because who knows what's going to happen next. We chose, I chose Mr. Rogers. Nobody questions whether that guy was Tove. That's what we're looking for. And I, I tell my students at times in classes, every church deserves a, a Mr. Rogers or a Mrs. Rogers as their pastor. That's the that's the model we want for people right there, and uh, not you know not a powerful person, not a arrogant person, not a performative person, but a tove person, and then we let that character begin to uh, shape what we're what we're trying to do. Now look at Jesus, you know, not Paul. Look at Jesus. And say now, how would he respond to it? That's what we're trying to develop. So now, re- recently, I heard of a, it's a local uh, megachurch pastor said, "I don't, I, I don't have the skill of empathy." And I thought, then you shouldn't be a pastor. Well, what is a pastor if they aren't empathetic? That's that's number one, one of the number ones, you know. But he he's successful. You know, famous, Mm. but that's not what we're looking for. Yeah, we, you and I as baseball fans, I call this the Manny Ramirez effect. And what happens is Manny knows, you know, when he was playing for the Red Sox, he knew he could get away with anything. And so he walks out to the outfield. Make, run, Manny. What are you going to do? Bench me? You can't. You know I'm too good. And he's just, you know, the, the locker room then was, the, the clubhouse was lost by that, that head coach, that manager, uh, because Manny knew I'm here because I'm good and you're not going to do anything about it. And I think, unfortunately, I, I think about that dynamic with really charismatic oh. pastors up front and elder teams and leadership teams and deacons that say, well, well, let's let Manny be Manny. And I think that some of that perpetuating uh, systems in the culture make it difficult when someone is quote unquote successful. So you met, you mentioned Mr. Rogers. We talked about this when we were down in Florida for the national gathering with Ecclesia 
I know he's still alive, so I'm breaking your rules here, but Tony Bennett, the coach of University of Virginia, as someone who's just marks me as someone full of hove in how he carries himself. I, you know, we don't often talk about the M word meek, meekness. Is there a sense of meekness and goodness that come together in terms of how we live out hove in our world? You know, I do use Tony Bennett in the book. <laughs> oh, you do? I. That's yeah. right, you do. Yeah, yeah. he's yeah. my favorite. He's my favorite. Oh, he so. is, um, everything I've read about him. I totally admire. He got he's offered a couple million dollar raise. He says, "No, let's let's distribute it to the staff members. They all need to be paid more." I thought that was wonderful. Um, meekness, humility. Uh, John Dixon wrote about this humilitas. Uh, these are all characteristics of a tove person. You know, um, recently I've been working on the pastoral, writing a little commentary on the pastoral epistles in Cambridge. And we have the list of, uh, for the, you know, the bishops and the deacons. And I was uh, assuming in the academic commentaries that I hadn't read that much into, but I'd read some, that they would all discuss Aristotle's uh, list of virtues, you know, the extremes on, on the, the bad and the good side, and the, the via media. And there's another great writing in that world, the Greco-Roman world, by Theophrastus on character. And I assumed they'd all be interacting with that, and they didn't. It was, most people treat this as a list. And I thought, no, this is not a list. These are expressions of the right character. So I, I say up front that um, the list of elders is, a, is an expression of a character of Tove. This is what Tove looks like. It can fluctuate. And one of the characteristics, of course, is meekness and humility and gentleness and kindness. So the fruit of the Spirit are manifestations of Tov character. But um, there's also a firmness. There's a, there's a kind of confidence in Tov that is firm without being too strong. And this is where Aristotle's virtue was is so vital, it's so helpful, is because everything that is good, let's say every element of a Tove character can go either one way or another. And firmness can become rigid or it can be sloppy, you know. A kindness can be so kind that it can't um, pull the, pull the no, I shouldn't use this, pull the trigger when it needs to. But it, it's the, the, the kind of person who can't say, you know, you don't have it. But at the other side is the people who pound away at, on, people, on others. So um, we need more emphasis on character from the very beginning. What's a character like? And this used to be a major part of public education. Um, and it's, it's really fallen by the wayside. And we reap the whirlwind of that with our recent president. When we talk about pastors, I'm not, I'm not asking this question as a five simple things to do, add water and stir, but what are some ways in which pastors can cultivate a life that embodies Tove? And I would love for you to be as specific and practical as you can, not, not legalistic hoops to jump through, but what does a cultivation in the life of a leader, a Christian leader, 
a pastor so that it doesn't become a cultural problem within a church? What does that look like? Okay. uh, I, I, I say this all the time. Education in the Bible and in the ancient world was emulation, not information. So the number one thing is people, pastors, need to have role models, let's say mentors, with whom they can spend sufficient time that that person, that mentor, um, we could say rubs off, but their personality, their their character toe begins to be experienced in such a way that it begins to transform the person. This is how character is passed on, is when you are with someone who is toe, mm. then they begin to influence you in the direction of toe. And if you really lack toe, you need to spend more time with someone who's toe. I, I believe that pastors and leaders in churches need to have mentors, older mentors, gray-haired, bald-headed people that they can spend time with who will say, no, that's not the way to do it. And um, it's not imposing. Uh, so, you know, I don't come up to you and say, how did you do this? Is that we have conversations and the time with that person begins to work into it. Uh, when I was a young professor, young professor, I loved to spend time with my older professor named Murray Harris. He was a man of toe. And I valued every minute I could spend with him because uh, I would walk away thinking I grew as a person by being with him. This is number one through number 10. There's only one or two other things left. You know, the role, the ultimate role model, the ultimate mentor, number one of the number one, is Jesus. So I think we need to open our Bibles and watch how Jesus behaves and to begin to let his pattern of life reshape our corrupted and toxic characters. Um, The other thing is I think we need to study. We need to read about character formation. You know, pastors tend to preach sermons and preach the text um, in such a way that they become distant distant from the text. Mark Allen Powell wrote a book, What Do They Hear? And he demonstrated that when pastors read the gospel passage, they identify with Jesus. When lay people read a gospel passage, they identify with the characters to whom Jesus ministered. We need to flip it. And we need to, leaders need to become the disciples. So we need to see ourselves, first of all, as disciples of Jesus, as people who are following Jesus, rather than as people who are telling other people how to follow Jesus. Um, So I think we need to work on character. Um, And then uh, I would say we need to learn to reframe what we're teaching, um, our theology, so that it becomes lived theology. I'm struck by this, is that you can have a systematic theology with nothing on discipleship. 
uh, I, I think, what would James say to that? No. Mm-hmm. Um, we, ethics is a separate volume, Christian and Christian. It's systematic theology a lot of times. Now, sometimes it comes up in sanctification. But um, there was a Baptist professor, I can't remember his name. I have the three volumes on my shelf, uh, who flipped it and made ethics first. And what happens to theology when we make ethics first? And what happens to ethics when we make character development first? That's what I think we need to do. We need to work from that, that dimension. What does God want? Who does God want me to be? What does God want me to be? And let that become the shaping force of what I teach. So uh, I did this with the Book of Romans in a book called Reading Romans Back. Um, what was the book about? What did Paul want to accomplish with the weak and the strong? And then let that reshape how we read the book. And it was a wonderful exercise. I, I really, that's one of my favorite books. Huh. Yeah. So, so if, uh, if pastors are taking this seriously in their own lives, obviously it's going to impact the culture of the church, but what does it look like if we were to cultivate as pastors and kingdom practitioners in our homes? What, what does a, what does a culture of Tove look like in a marriage? Uh, what are characteristics of that in terms of parenting? Um, well, Tove is, um, is a mag is a magnificent term. Uh, I mean, it covers everything. So in how we communicate with one another, how we disagree with one another, how we, um, what we expect of one another, how we help one another. And we all, in marriages, develop patterns that are partly redeemed, partly unredeemed. And Tov, um, at times, nudges us, pokes us, mm. reminds us that there's a, there's a pattern here that probably is not as good as it ought to be. And uh, that's where we need to acknowledge it and, and work on it. Oh. Find out how we, what do we do when we disagree with one another? Do we dig in? Do we fight? Now, there's a place to fight and there's a place to back off. Um, with children especially, you know, there's an old line do as I say, not as I do, uh, that is corrupting, toxic. And um, I think we need to say, uh, I want my children to grow up to be just like me. Mm. And uh, that's a, that is a bold claim. You know, the Apostle Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's, I mean, how many people want to say that? They say, nah, imitate Jesus, not me. Mm. Um, I think we can, I think we need to take that as an example. I want my children to grow up to be just like mom and dad. Mm. And that, that will help us focus on character. I I love at the beginning of your answer to that question, you used three very interesting verbs. You said Tove nudges, pokes, and reminds. Like what a great image of what Tove can do in our lives. Like both... Soft and comforting as well as, you know, a little like a spur a little bit, kind of getting the yeah. horse moon in the direction of Tove, uh, which is great. I want to go back to something you said earlier. I love the idea of we need emulation more than information. Pastors need mentors. 
What would you say to the pastor? Because I know there's some listening because they've reached out to us to tell us this, to say, I'm lonely. I want a mentor. I want somebody I can spend time with. I don't know where to even look for someone like that. Any advice you might have for someone who longs for the kind of Tove mentors that you're talking about, but doesn't know where to begin? You know, um, this is an interesting thing to me. Uh, because a pastor who says that he or she is lonely um, has a, in, by and large, unless they're out in some, let's say, Montana, and I don't, <laughs> I don't know enough about Montana to know whether I'm right or not. And, you know, it's 100 miles to the next uh, church or the next leader. I think we're blinkered in this sense. There are pastors in your community who are bald or gray-haired, who can be your mentor. They may be Roman Catholic priests. They may be Eastern Orthodox. They may be old Presbyterian. And I have found that with pastors um, who have been pastors 30, 40 years, every one of them has so much hope in them. Now, some of them are kind of Pinheads, you know, they they never they never did well, and they grouched their whole life. But by and large, if they've succeeded, for, uh, you know, in the sense that they've endured that long, they've learned a lot about working with people. And uh, I meet with some pastors in the area at times. Now we don't right now during COVID. And there's um and I, I, there's a priest in uh, at St. Mary of the Lake that I really like. His name is Father Thomas. And Abema, uh, Tom Bain was a referee in the, uh, in the Big Dead basketball. <laughs> I, I often call him that, but I don't mean to do that. Um, and uh, I find b- because he's Catholic, he comes from a different tradition. He's very well educated. He's read stuff I've never read, and he has wisdom about stuff. And yesterday we were communicating via email. And he told me what it was like to perform the sacred rites in an empty church and just Mm. how empty that is. But he said it's amazing because people normally at the end of a service in a Catholic church leave and go home. He said they, they text us and they email us. We're having interactions with people that we never have had before. So he said, maybe there's something redeemed uh, in all this. But I would say if you're lonely, uh, think about a Catholic priest or a Orthodox. There, there's some people around who who have been around and who would have some wisdom for them. It's mm, good. It's a good word. And, and you know, our, our pastor, Jay Greener, he meets with a pastor's group. I think they meet once a month. And some of them have, you know, have retired pastors who just have a lot of experience. Mm. And mm. and you've pastored enough. Someone asked something about an elder board, and you go, "Well, well, this is the kind of people who become elders. This is mm. what happens. You got some yeah. people who really don't know what they're doing, and you got some people who do, and people are in different levels, and this is what." church life is like. Let's Mm. move on. So think about your book being written 15 years ago, 20 years ago. I know that 
this is, uh, you know, based on the backdrop of the Willow story. But that aside, this idea of Tov, how different do you think the book would have been or would have been received 15, 20 years ago as opposed to now? Well, um, now this is where your buddy David Fitch is going to come in. All theology is, is local. It's also temporal. So this book I wouldn't have written 15 years because were characteristics of toxic culture that needed to be moving toward toe. So we play, we bounced off of the kinds of the elements of toxicity in churches that produce abusive culture. So that, that abuse women, that abuse power, that uh, produce false narratives, you know, that are more concerned with loyalty. They're all into celebrity. Those, those elements of toxicity gave rise uh, to the things that we say, no, this is what, instead of that, this is what Tov would look like there. So I would have to know the context for which I would need to have written it 15 years ago to know what dimensions of Tov needed to be brought out. As I said at the beginning, it's a master moral category. It encompasses everything. I'm not saying that you can't use other terms to encompass everything. Michael Gorman would use cruciformity, and I have used in my Pastor Paul book, Christoformity. Okay, I, all of those, those are all the same for me. So 15 years ago, I would have had a different context and would have written a different book. Mm-hmm. I would have written this the is- Jesus Creed. <laughs> <laughs> So just in our last couple of questions here, I, I want to get a, even a little bit more personal if you want to go there for a second, because as pastors and as, even as us seminary professors, we can sometimes talk a really good game, but we need to make sure that we're practicing what we're preaching. So I'm curious, Scott, and maybe this is more something that your wife, Chris, would answer, but it's getting a little meta here, but how would you know you were cultivating and embodying and expressing Tove? even as you've written about it? What's the evidence well, of Tove in your life? You know, this is the thing. When you're writing about it, you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I <laughs> didn't expect to go here. Um, and uh, so, you know, some of the things that come to mind, I'm a professor. You know, I'm a writer. And um, Tove for me meant devoting my life of writing and teaching for the church. It's easier to want to write something, spend 15 years on it, write a 700-page book that everybody will have to read and nobody reads. Um, But I decided to devote myself to the church and let some of the church's needs drive what I had to, to offer. So they've reshaped my career because of this. Because of the book 15 years ago, 16, Jesus Creed, that that reshaped my life. And I think that was the working of God in my life to say, you know, you've written a couple academic books. Let's move on to helping the church. So that was a big part of me. And I find in, um, I get a lot of email questions. Some of them are just, 
know, I think, why in the world are you writing me about? I got one yesterday. It was so, it was, it was the craziest letter. And Chris Lucas said, please don't respond to that. Who knows what's going on? It Is that really why you good. didn't email me back? I was wondering why you didn't email me back from that. No. 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 You cannot believe what I got this letter. About. Um, I find that um, it was with student interactions that Tove shines a light on how I respond to students, uh, how I interact with people who write to me. Um, it's easy to be snarky on. Twitter, and uh, I made a statement to a person yesterday who irritates me on Twitter. Um, I think it was the right thing to say, uh, but it was one of those statements that do I need to say this? And I thought, yeah, I do. Um, and um, so I, I think that those interact, that's where Tove comes up for me. It's in the ordinary elements of life conversations you know, at the store, at the restaurant. You know, just please let me be, treat you as a functionary and you treat me. But if we're told, we treat them as people. So I think it's it's all pervasive, JR. It never stops. Yeah, it's easy to think, oh, the spiritual or the significant things, but the everyday yeah, conversation with the cashier is maybe uh, where our role as pastors is where it shines brightest, or at least is the litmus test that reveals whether we're Tove or not, is how yeah. we treat that cashier uh, behind the counter there. Um, so let, just last question as we close, knowing that we've got a lot of pastors that listen, maybe there are pastors that have inflicted pain because of their lack of Toveness <laughs> on their congregation. Maybe they've experienced that and have operated out of that pain that they've experienced whether it's Tove or not, I just want to give you the last opportunity to say whatever you want, whether it's a challenge, a reminder, or an encouragement to pastors who might be listening to this conversation. Just give you one last opportunity to say whatever you wish uh, to them who might be listening. You know, I would say uh, tell your story to someone who is Tove, to some con father confessor. If you don't have one, buy one and say, this is what I, I said. And uh, this is what I did. It wasn't mm. very good. And ask, uh, what can I do? What, what should I do? What should I have done? What can I do now mm. uh, to make that better, to reconcile? And I, I think that uh, pastors are prone to think that if they, this is a characteristic of narcissists. If they admit, if they admit that they did something wrong, it destroys them. They can't admit because everything is so deeply personal. And one of the great principles of the Bible, one of the great feasts of Israel is Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, which was a day uh, every every Jew was to go to the temple and confess their sin. This is a pretty strong reminder. We have the same type of event in Christianity in, in Lent where we go through a period of confession, preparation to confess our sin. I think the discipline of confessing is, and even if it's to God, uh, but at times we need to tell someone else and get their wisdom on it. And um, 
I would also say to practice not only confession with others, but uh, the, the discipline of listening to others who have wisdom and say, you know, um, I'm thinking of doing this series. I really want to do this series, but the people in church want to do this. Help me decide. And I think that uh, pastors need to practice losing. They need to practice doing things that other people want rather than what they want mm. in order just to model that we can work together on doing these things that, uh, well. I've, I've told, told some of my students, Andy, do you win every argument with your elders? One student said yes. I said, you need to lose at least one a year, a, an important one. Well, why would I do that? Just so they know they can lose arguments. Maybe it'll build a culture of listening to one another and surrendering to one another. And when you're surrendering to one another, you're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. What a great word. God, it's always great to be with you. Thanks for uh, the book that you've written with you and Laura, uh, The Importance of Tove, and bringing that to the level of priority it needs to be in our conversation and, and in the culture and our church cultures as well. So great to be with you. Thanks again for joining us. Good to be with you, JR. Thanks.